I'd like to welcome you to the Jed Hughes Podcast. Each episode will feature a unique leader and will delve into the qualities that inspire greatness, galvanize organizations, and teach the next generation of aspiring leaders. Jed ran the process that resulted in the hiring of Pete Carroll, Jim Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Masai Uzuri. Now, according to Forbes, Jed is the most connected man in sports. Our guest today has demonstrated what hard work and building outstanding relationships can do to build your career. Brian LaFamina graduated from Rutgers and took an internship in Madison Square Garden. And through 20 years of hard work, relationship building, and innovation, moved to a senior level position and was recruited to the National Football League. At the National Football League, he was able to demonstrate how important it was to engage the fans and create meaningful experiences in home stadiums. Casey Wasserman had the vision to recruit Brian LaFamina as his chief business officer for LA 2028. Imagine the Olympics are in 2028 and LA 28, hired Brian several years ago. Welcome, Brian LaFamina. Welcome, friends. Today, if you're looking to get into sports, our guest really worked and rolled his sleeves up from being a uh, an athlete in college to working his way up in two of the most elite organizations in professional sports. Brian. I really appreciate you joining us today. Talk about Rutgers and 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 sports and how you were involved in, in your fraternity and how it all got started for you. You were a Phi Gam. I was a Phi Gam. I am a Phi Gam. Uh, it's great all to right. be with you, Jed. Thank you. Well, sports has been a big part of my life since I was, uh, you know, for as long as I can remember, since I was a little guy, you know, growing up uh, at that age in, in Brooklyn and, you know, sitting in front of the black and white TV. And watching the New York Mets and my beloved New York Rangers. And, you know, it was just always a part of, of our family, our family's culture. And when I got old enough, you know, I wanted to strap on the skates and get a bat in my hand. And um, it was a, just a, a great uh, part of my life growing up. And I was fortunate enough uh, that it, it, it created a path for me to have opportunities that uh, I never could have imagined uh, way back then. So, I mean, you get out of college. How do you get your internship with the Garden? When I was in college, I, the last thing I thought I was going to do was work in the sports business. And, you know, we're going back to the, the mid-1980s, Jed. So, you know, sports marketing was, you know, not really even much of a thing. It was, uh, it was in its infancy, really. So in college, I was an economics major. I thought I was going to uh, go work on Wall Street. And I had done an internship at Payne Weber, which is now UBS. I was working uh, in mortgage-backed securities and thought I would go and maybe be an analyst on Wall Street. But I was an athlete. Um, growing up, I was a you know pretty good baseball player, and I was a, a springboard diver, believe it or not, and uh, went to school on a diving scholarship. And somewhere along the way, I had a, a, a relative say to me, you love sports, you're an athlete, why don't you try to work in sports? And I, I had no idea what that meant, but... 
um, I was able to, uh, you know, find a, a way to get an internship at Madison Square Garden, um, which, you know, was like a dream come through. I'll never forget walking through those doors my first day, going up to the arena, walking around and just thinking I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm actually a part of this. I'm not just a spectator. I'm actually a part of this. And I was hooked. I had to find a way that this was going to be somehow how I was going to have a career in, in this business. And I didn't even know what that meant at that time. But it was just so intoxicating for me. And that first internship was seminal for me because it was a rotating internship. The garden had never really had interns before. They didn't know what the heck to do with me. So I, I rotated around six different departments that first summer. And everything from sponsorship and advertising sales to building operations, public relations, and ticketing. And, um, you know, I got to, I got to see a lot of how that business worked. So I was fortunate enough that happened my junior year, my senior year, I asked if I could go back and uh, I went and worked in the sponsorship and, and media department. That went really well. And then the next spring, Madison Square Garden Network did a deal to take the New York Yankees on exclusively on MSG Network and they were staffing up. So I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. I had built the connections through two years of internships they needed young folks to come on in and work in their media department, and that's what I did. So you began in the media department. At that point, was Dave Chekich running the garden? Nope. Dick Evans was the president of Madison Square Garden, and Bob Gutkowski was the president of MSG Network. Okay. So, you know, it was a really dynamic time. I mean, we went from 1 million subscribers on MSG Network to 10 million subscribers in about three years. Uh, we, you know, MSG Network was this sleepy little thing that, you know, we would we would have the uh, the Knicks and the Rangers home games on cable. The away games were were on over the air broadcast television. So we had the, the home games and um, we'd run like we were owned by Paramount Communications. So we would run like the uh, the Untouchables, the old TV series sure. uh, at night or, you know, Star Trek reruns. Right. So it was a sleepy little thing and it just got you know, supercharged with the addition of the New York Yankees and became a, you know, 24 hour cable network and, you know, the largest and oldest regional sports network. And because it was owned by Madison Square Garden, which owned the teams, which owned the building, we really were the first vertically integrated sports marketing company that ever existed. And we really paved the way for the model um, that you really see that's fairly ubiquitous today, you know, whether it's with MLSE, whether it's with AEG, whether it's um, what's going down down in Philadelphia, in Detroit, you know, the ownership of the teams, the network, uh, and and the facility is something that's fairly common today, but it was, it was very uncommon back then. Help our audience understand what that means to vertically integrate. You, you said it, but step us through that a little more specifically, if you would. Sure. So, you know, going back uh, back in the day, the way that, you know, most of, of sports franchises worked is somebody owned the franchise. You played in a municipally owned building for the most part, um, which means that the city owned the building. Uh, you would do a deal with a local TV station to, to air your games, a different local radio station to air the games on the radio. You'd hire, you know, a food service company to, to service, you know, all of the, uh, the concessions. And at Madison Square Garden, that was all owned really by, by one organization. And what that allowed for you to do was to be incredibly efficient, first of all, from a sales perspective, which is what I was doing at the time in sponsorship and media, is to be able to go out with a one-stop shopping offer to an advertiser 
So you could go to Anheuser-Busch and say, listen, we'd love you to be a sponsor of our teams. We'll run six 30-second commercials in our TV broadcast. We're going to run commercials on radio broadcast. We're going to you know, make sure that you are integrated um, into our food service operation. And it was just an easy way because normally what would happen is you would have, uh, you know, before, before vertical integration, you might have Miller, who would be the TV on the TV broadcast. You might have Anheuser-Busch, who was on a radio broadcast. You might have another beer who was, um, who was a sponsor of the teams. And it was just, you know, a little bit messy. And this, this you know, made it more streamlined and, and easier for everybody to understand and for the team to protect its, uh, its exclusivities. Talk about how you move. what were a couple of the critical things you achieved so that you could move um, up the ladder, so to speak. Well, again, the, the great thing about the garden with that vertical integration is we were involved in everything, especially in the sales department, because you had to be working with the people who were actually running the team or running the network or running, you know, different parts of the organization. So you became a bit of an expert in building operations and public relations and all the different pieces of the company. Um, you couldn't just sit in your silo and worry about, you know, selling whatever you were going to sell. You had to figure out how to make all of that, all of that come to life. And I've always been since, you know, the day I got into this business, I'm a, I'm a sports nerd. I just love everything about it. And I want to learn everything I possibly can. So I would say that, you know, part of it is just my, my innate curiosity of how things work and wanting to understand it at its, at its core that allowed me to, you know, continue to take on more and more responsibility. And, you know, whenever there was a, an opportunity for something new, I was the first one to raise my hand. You know, I wanted to, you know, when we were putting new signage in the building, I wanted to be the guy who understood the technology and worked with the company that did that and integrate the advertisers into the new technology. Later on, when Web 1.0 started coming online, I was the guy who put my hand up. I was like, let me send me to all the conferences. You know, I'll be the guy who, who understands and tries to, to help this organization understand you know, where we might be able to utilize that new technology. So I think that curiosity and never being afraid to, to put your name out there and say, let, let me be the person to figure this out, always positioned me fairly well inside that company. Then an opportunity comes to join the National Football League. I don't know if the opportunity just came. I think somebody named Jed Hughes <laughs> called me and said, uh, hey, there's this great opportunity at the NFL. To be honest with you, working at – so I I'd worked, like I said, I worked in media, um, selling sponsorships and you know marketing partnerships. And then I, before we get to the NFL, I had taken an opportunity. There was a real challenge. The Knicks and the Rangers had been sold out from a ticketing perspective forever. Suites had been sold out since they put the suites in the building, and there were some challenges there. And so uh, ownership came to me and asked me if, if I would take on that, that challenge. And they said, we, we kind of like the culture that that's, you know, exists over in, in, in sponsorship and media sales. Can we do some of that, that good stuff over <laughs> in ticketing and, and suites? And I had never sold a ticket in my life. I'd never managed a suites department in my life, but I said, sure. And I'd always had in the back of my mind that, you know, I might want to run a team or you know run a different kind of business at some point. And I knew that that was something I was going to need to do. So I stepped away from, you know, a, a part of my career that was going incredibly well and disrupted the whole thing by going to do something totally different. It was safe because it was inside my same company, but it was something completely new and different. And that really elevated me inside the company because, because once we started having some success there, they looked at me and said, oh, this is a, this is a guy who can fix stuff. Whenever we have a tough problem, we're going to come and, and you know see if Brian can you know maybe 
uh, be a part of the solution. So did that and uh, had been there for 22 years and kind of had run its course. And I, I wanted to do my own thing. So I stepped out of the garden and had a, a little sports marketing company, which is when I met you. And I will say working for a team or teams, you don't always love the league office. And at the Knicks and the Rangers, we liked the league office maybe a little less than most teams. And so when you called me with this opportunity, I couldn't have been less interested in the NFL. I really wasn't. Well, then you were like, nah, come on in and talk to me. And I didn't know you. And I, you know, I knew your name. And so I came in and had a great meeting with you. And we just talked. And uh, I kind of, you know, went back home. And I was like, I met this interesting, I told my wife, I said, I met this interesting guy in the NFL. And could be an interesting opportunity, but I don't think I'm not interested. And she said to me, you know, why wouldn't you do that? It's the biggest platform in sports. She's like, I think you're pretty good at what you do. You know, and you think that could lead to some good things. And uh, through a lot of conversations with you and, you know, at that point, my future colleagues at the NFL, uh, I was sold on really starting up the club business development right. department at the National Football League. Which, I mean, in terms of how you did that Explain to our audience what you did. I mean, how you you built the, this uh, incredible fan awareness. I mean, it was what you did was really unbelievable. And then you had a bunch of owners reaching out. Want to hire. I mean, you you really built a platform for the league and for yourself. Well, you know the old saying that ignorance is bliss definitely helped me uh, <laughs> when I started there because you know I was fortunate in that working for the Knicks and seeing how Teambo team marketing business operations at the NBA operated. Talk a little was, bit about that for the for our audience. They may not understand that. Sure. So Teambo is a department at the National Basketball Association that is is responsible for helping each organization, each each member team to to maximize their local opportunities. So whereas most folks at a league office are focused on the national opportunities, Teambo and ultimately the group that I, I ran at the NFL Club Business Development, we focus on the teams and we focus on how we can help each team achieve the best results. And so Teambo, you know, created uh, or, or they, they facilitated best practices between teams. So if somebody's doing something great in Sacramento, you know, somebody in San Antonio will know about it and they'll push those best practices out and, you know, they'll they'll create uh, um, reports so that you understand where you sit overall in the NBA, so you can measure yourself against the other teams, which was uh, really industry changing when they when they set that department up. And uh, and we benefited from it at the Knicks for sure. I would say that when I went to the, the NFL, a lot of what Teambo did was, you know, was front and center in my mind. But the NFL is just a different organization than the NBA is. And whereas the NBA at that point had, you know, this this large group doing this, we were going to be a, a smaller group. And frankly, it was it was a couple of us, three of us when I first started. And um, when I say ignorance is bliss, I wasn't worried about all of the things that the people at the NFL thought were possible in a group like this. And one of the first things I was told is half the teams aren't going to talk to you. You know, they're they're you know, they're not going to want to listen to it. And that may have may not have been true, but I that was not my orientation. You know, we were going to go out there. I think the thing that differentiated us from, you know, anything that they had tried at the league before was that myself and my first two hires were Bobby Gallo and Laura Lefton, both of whom I had worked with at the Garden before, and Laura had gone on to the Nets. But I think what was important is that we had all worked at teams. 
And I think that our message resonated with the NBA, with the NFL clubs because we weren't somebody who was just sitting at the league office and was assigned to help the teams. We, we had lived their life. We had um, been faced with their challenges and we understood what it was like on a day-to-day basis to, to beat a team, to be in a sales or marketing or operations role. And we approached it from, from that perspective. It was always about how do we help the clubs achieve better results, never pushing, you know, any kind of an agenda from the league. And, you know, it, it didn't happen overnight, but, you know, we made sure that we went out and saw every single team and we were, we created relationships and ultimately we were able to push through a lot of changes that I think were, were needed and I think have had fantastic results uh, over the years. Take an example of a team that you went in and really helped where there was resistance on the front end and then they couldn't believe what you were able to help them with. Well, I, listen, I, I, could, I could give a hundred different examples of that because it's not just a team. You might have, you know, you might have a club that has uh, a sponsorship group that is all in and wants to hear everything you have to say, but a ticketing group that's less so. Um, so as opposed to specific teams, I think there were just some, you know, I'll give you an example. When we got to the league in 2010, there were a significant number of teams that didn't have a database, as an example right? They didn't have email addresses for their season ticket members. And so coming from a place like Madison Square Garden, where even in, in the early days of database marketing, it was one of the most important tools we had pushing that idea forward, you know, util- utilization of data and analytics. While certainly there were some teams that were very steeped in it, most notably, you know, the Patriots and Jessica Gelman, who was there at the time, who's you know gone on since to create Kager. You know they were they were ahead of the curve, but there were a lot of teams that were really weren't anywhere. There were teams that you know wouldn't take uh, wouldn't take credit cards for uh, season tickets. They wanted checks, right? So you were you know there were there were some of these old practices that made some sense at some point, but that were creating friction between the fans or the customers and the club. And we went in there and tried to to stop all that. One of the other things, and I think this is a big one, was really attacking the fan experience. At NFL games, so there's no better sport, you know, in the world as far as I'm concerned. And NFL football, you know, it's great on TV. And when I got there, there was a big, you know, there was a, a lot of uh, noise around the idea, Jed, that the TV product was better, right? TV product's better than being inside the stadium um, was a big talking point. And we had a lot of blackouts. So the blackout rule in the NFL was if you didn't sell all of your tickets, then the, the game wouldn't be shown locally. So I think we had 40 or 50 blackouts the, you know, the year I got there. And you know, part of the challenge in, in our estimation was we just weren't making the most compelling game in the world entertaining enough inside our stadiums. And one of the things that's a, a silly example, but I think a, one that's you know, very, very illustrative is teams weren't allowed to play music in between plays inside the stadium. Uh, and it was... Uh, it was one of those things where I, I just looked at it and said, coming from the NBA, where they have every bell and whistle and they make the game as exciting as possible. You know, you have, you know, 15 minutes of action in an NFL game in a three hour block and we weren't entertaining our fans. And so our group went out and we were the tip of the spear to say, we, we've got to change this. And what that meant was we had to change some league rules that had been in place for a really long time. I had to go to the competition committee and get an earful from coaches or owners or general managers 
Uh, I even had the the great pleasure of having John Madden snap at me in a meeting one time because, um, you know, we were like, listen, we've got to play music. And one of the other ones was we wouldn't show replays on the video boards with right. these great video boards. If the home team thought it might not, it might be a call that went against them. So if there was a play that, you know, might get overturned, they didn't want to show it. So we actually created league rules where it said, this isn't an option anymore. All right. You need to show a replay after every play. You need to show two replays after every scoring play. You need to show two replays after every change of possession. There was actually one team that said to me, I said, why wouldn't you show this play on the video board? And the person who runs game presentation said, well, I'd love to do that. But I got, I got buzzed. I said, what do you mean you got buzzed? They said, well, coach on the sideline has a buzzer in his pocket. And if he doesn't want us to show a replay, he buzzes it. I was like, we, we're programming the game for the 200 people on the sidelines instead of the 80,000 people in the stadium. And that's a recipe for not success. So it was, it was things like that that I think that we really um, had just a, a different way of thinking on coming from NHL and NBA and, and MLB backgrounds that we were able to help inject into the league, which I think, um, you know, ultimately all the teams embraced because it's things that the people at the clubs wanted to do. But there were there were rules that were prohibiting them from doing it, and nobody ever thought to try to push through the rules before. The other thing you did, I mean, you built incredible relationships, and then again wanted to get back to the club. So you make a decision to go to probably the most challenging organization in professional sports to to go on as the president on the business side, and um, you may want to talk a little bit about that experience. Sure. I mean, look, I, I want to start by saying that. My experience at the NFL, and, and I, I grew up at, at Madison Square Garden, and I'll always have an, you know a big place in my heart for for there for for the Garden. Um, I grew up rooting for those teams, but the National Football League, and you know, and I owe a lot of it to you, Jed. To be honest with you, for even considering me for that job, it changed the course of my career. Um, having the opportunity to work with who I consider to be the smartest and absolute best group of professionals working in the business. What they've done and what they continue to do on a day-to-day basis is amazing. And I was fortunate to be there. And I was fortunate that, you know, Roger Goodell and Joseph Claire gave me the opportunities to, to always push the boundaries uh, because, you know, they wanted the clubs to get better. So, of course, creating relationships is important in anything. And, you know, I think that I, you know, I've got good relationships with, with most of the owners, if not you know, all of the owners of the clubs, as well as the people who work there. And um, I always had in the back of my mind that I would want to go and operate again. So, yeah, I, I had an opportunity to go and join uh, uh, the Washington football team, and which was still the Redskins back then. And um, it was a great opportunity. I mean, it was it's a great brand in our nation's capital, an incredibly important market, uh, getting ready to build a stadium. And, uh, and it was a big challenge. And so I, I took that opportunity and I embraced it. And, uh, you know, it didn't it didn't work out the way I would have liked it to. But I think that, you know, the people that we had there did some some really good work. And I think that we were we were early is is the best way I could put it. I think that we were probably just a little bit early for the things that um, we were trying to accomplish. And, uh, you know, I think they're on a, a much, much better path now. And I think they've got some good people there and hopefully they'll have a lot of success. Well, again, I tried to recruit you again. And this yes, time, uh, Casey was ahead of me. He had built a relationship with you. And 
the thing I wanted the audience to understand is how he was able to recruit you and convince you to take a role with something that was nine years away from happening. Absolutely. And I, listen, I was very fortunate, you know, coming out of Washington, you, you were, you know, incredibly gracious and, and considering me for something over, over with you. Um, and I had a number of, of different opportunities and I wanted to be very mindful. I had had two jobs in 30 years and then I had, you know, my third job was, was about a year. So I wanted to be very mindful, very thoughtful about what I did next. I had a, had a good relationship with Casey and, you know, after I left Washington, we had a conversation he was like, listen, why don't you think about doing this Olympic thing, you know, with me and, uh, you know, go meet, go meet with Kathy Carter and let, let's see if there's something there. And I remember saying to him, Casey, what, what, what am I going to do for nine and a half years? And, you know, he kind of, he and Kathy sold me on the vision and um, it was fairly undefined. You know, it was like, Hey, we, we don't exactly know what we need, but we think that you'd be great, a great addition to the team. And uh, so I said, what are we going to do for nine and a half years? And six months in, I went to go see Casey and I said, um, how are we going to do all this in only nine years? To <laughs> <laughs> so talk about what you're able to in terms of how you build in the infrastructure, building the plan, doing the things to get ready for this. Well, our organizing committee for LA 2028 is really unique in that we had been originally bidding for the 2024 games that ultimately went to Paris. and they the ioc made the unprecedented decision to award two summer olympic games at the same time 24 and 28 so whereas an organizing committee usually has a seven-year life cycle uh, we had an 11-year life cycle you know there were folks working on this long before you know we got there or i got there so there was a, a good bit of work done so originally when i got there nine and a half years out the first thing was to, to set up the commercial program make sure that we were able to be generate the revenues because we're completely privately funded uh, Olympic games and to set up the commercial uh, teams so that we could generate the revenue to, to put the games on. And we spent, you know, a good bit of time, you know, doing that Kathy, Chris Pepe and, and others uh, on the uh, sponsorship side. And I sort of tackled the ticketing hospitality and accommodation side of it as well as going out and negotiating all the deals for the stadiums and the venues that we're going to host the games in. So a lot of the work that, that's being done, even up until right now, is, is that foundational work of you know, the blocking and tackling of how do you get ready to host the biggest event in the world in the second biggest city in this country? Because it's not just you know, you're, you're hosting a basketball game here and a track event here. You've got transportation, you've got security, you've got city services. There's a million things that need to come together to do this in one place at one time. Um, so, you know, we're working with all of our partners, whether they're venue partners, other delivery partners, or partners in the city of Los Angeles, to make sure that, you know, we are, you know, we're on track. And at the same time, making incredible investments in the city. So, one of the first things we did is we made a, a, a commitment to fund $160 million for a youth sports program in the city of Los Angeles, which was just about to get up and running when the pandemic hit. So oh, yeah. while it's been pushed back a little bit, you know, we've, we've made that commitment and we're working with the city of Los Angeles, uh, Parks and Recreation, uh, and putting great programs in place for the youth sports program. So in addition to, you know, making sure that we put a great games on for the fans, for the athletes, for our partners, you know, we want to leave leave a legacy when this is over. 
that we've done some real good in this community that, you know, we're, we're going to leave, we're going to leave people with, uh, with, with hopefully a better Los Angeles than, than we found when we got there. Talking about facilities that you're going to be able to utilize as opposed to anything you're going to have to build. Help us understand that if you would. So we're a unique Olympic Games. You know, sustainability is a watchword for, for our games. And the most sustainable games is one in which you don't need to build anything. And Los Angeles to me is, is almost the perfect Olympic city. Um, we are not going to build one permanent structure for the games. Uh, when you think about the infrastructure from a sports perspective that exists in Los Angeles, we've got three 70,000 plus seat stadiums, right? You've got the Rose Bowl, the Coliseum and SoFi Stadium, which, you know, is, is, is amazing. The Rose Bowl and, uh, and, and the Coliseum are going to be the first stadiums ever to host three Olympic Games, 32, 84 and 28. Um, so what an incredible legacy there. Uh, obviously, you have top-notch operators in AEG, which you know obviously owns and runs the Staples Center and Dignity Sports uh, Park down in the South Bay of Los Angeles. Uh, SoFi, which you know I mentioned, our partners at UCLA and USC, which are incredibly important. Uh, the Athletes Village is going to be at UCLA. Usually, that's one of the biggest expenditures that you have in putting on an Olympic Games, and you know we have an amazing uh, partner in UCLA and amazing facilities that host 20,000 uh, young people every day living their lives on campus. So, you know, the athletes are going to, are going to live there during the, uh, the Olympics and Paralympics. And that's one of the things, you know, I should always highlight is our commitment to, to the Paralympics, because in addition to putting on uh, the Olympic games, we take a break and, uh, you know, get our facilities ready. And then we host the Paralympics for, for two weeks after that. You know, it's incredible to have met you when we first met and to see how you have just matured and raised your game and the way you present yourself and your vision and the way you're able to conduct business. I mean, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you on as a guest. Great to be here. And, you know, for anybody listening that's trying to get into the business or is, is you know, fairly young in the business, it's a marathon. And I think everybody has to remember that, you know, we live in a world where people want instant gratification. And, you know, sometimes my 30 plus years in the business feel like a blur. But when I go back and I think about, you know, the, the different phases of my career, I would just say that fall in love with what you're doing that day. Right? don't look, you know, it's always good to have goals and you should, you know, you should have a vision, but Try not to look beyond the desk you're sitting at, because the truth is all of your success comes from whatever you do well at the desk that you're sitting at today. And if it's not what you want to be doing, then, you know, make moves to go do something else. But um, it doesn't happen quickly. And, you know, relationships are you know, the, the greatest asset you can ever have. And you build those relationships by um, telling people what you're going to do and then doing it, frankly. Talk is cheap, and if you if you do what you say you're going to do, uh, people will remember that, and and it'll have a lasting impact on your life and your career. So even in this day of social media, where you have these younger people coming up, and they're doing so many different things electronically and digitally, the relationship piece. How do you help them understand the touch points as opposed to just using the phone? Well, listen, I. I and maybe it's because I'm old now, Jed, but um, I think that hearing a voice actually is important. Um, I think that a lot gets lost in translation over text. 
of any type, whether it's an email or a text message or however you're going to communicate, all of those things are tools and they're incredibly powerful tools. You know, when, when my kids were younger, I used to, I used to tell them, listen, a hammer is a tool. You can use it to build a house or break a television. How you use the tool is actually important. These tools are powerful and they need to be utilized. They need to be utilized right. But I, for, from where I sit, there's nothing like looking into somebody's eyes, talking to them, sharing a moment with them. And that's why I love live sports. I'll go back to something I said a few minutes ago where everybody for a long time was like, hey, you know, the you know, football is better on TV. I don't buy it. I love live sports. The reason I'm in this business is I love events. I love being a part of it. I love being there. And I don't ever remember in my life saying to somebody, hey, do you remember that time that we watched that game together? It's always, hey, do you remember when we were at that event together? There's something about the human connection. And in the last 18 months where we've lost a lot of it due to the pandemic, I think it's going to be more important than ever to be with people, to spend time with them, to share experiences with them. And to me, that's how you build lasting relationships. Well, and you've had an incredible story, uh, our listeners, in terms of understanding hard work and how that pays off and what you've done to, to where you are today and what's going to happen the Olympics in 28th. It's exciting to watch your journey and to continue to, to watch you uh, progress as a leader. So thank you for being part of our uh, podcast. Well, th- thanks for having me, Jed. And uh, listen, the greatest blessing in life is to love what you do every day. So uh, hopefully everybody can find that. Thank you.